Hi, it's Baz. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Life Pedagogic from CFUY's Youth and Education podcast. In this series of podcast episodes, we're interviewing high-profile guests about their life and work within the youth and education sectors. These exploratory open discussions will invite you into the speaker's world and encourage challenging thinking. We hope you enjoy listening. While all young people have suffered significant disruption to their learning as a result of the pandemic, research has shown that children and young people with SEND were disproportionately affected. However, all too often the support these young people need to thrive comes as an afterthought. At CFEY, we know there are lots of good examples of great practice happening in schools and youth settings, but this good work can be hampered by a slow-moving and fragmented system. One person who's committed to improving the experiences of young people with SEND and the practitioners who support them is Margaret Mulholland, our guest today. Currently an SEN and Inclusion Specialist at the Association of School and College Leaders, Margaret is an experienced education leader committed to inclusive pedagogy, school improvement, teacher development and policy innovation. Margaret is also an advisor to the UK Government on Initial Teacher Training Curriculum Development, an Honorary Norum Fellow at the University of Oxford, and a member of the Executive Committee for the University's Council for the Education of Teachers, as well as recently joining CFUY's board. She joins us today on the podcast to talk about her experiences. Margaret Mulholland, welcome to your Life Pedagogic. Thanks, Alex. It's lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you. I'm going to dive right in on the topic of SEND, which I know is your specialism. Last year, we saw the much-delayed release of the SEND and AP Green Paper, and I'm aware that you commented before its release on how frustrating the wait for this work was. What do you feel the sector really needed from this paper, and did you feel it addressed those issues? Well, I think what we needed was action, and we're still waiting for that action. We know the SEND system is broken. We know that anecdotally, but we also know that from multiplicity of evidence around the system. So I think on a positive note, the SEND Green Paper did identify some of the, you know, the key issues and problems correctly. So low confidence of parents, poor progress of young people with special educational needs and a funding issue that is we don't have enough funding in the system that is going to the right places and reaching the places it needs to reach. On the one hand, positively, we we saw the Green Paper identify those and articulate those challenges, I think, really quite effectively. And I think the ambition is also positive, you know, right time, right place, right support. I think the challenge going forward is timing. You know, we're losing time. Young people are losing time, precious time in their education that isn't being Um, effectively supported and we're faced with a sort of complex set of issues that I think are seen as a burden rather than an opportunity and that's why I think we see a a sort of slow sluggish response from the government because it is complex but equally we do need and we do we must have that action so I think the the big challenge really um, as we await the implementation plan is thinking about, you know, are those ambitions for right time, right place, right support really at the heart of the policy making that we will see in the implementation plan? Or is it a quest to save money in the guise of system improvement? And I think we have to remain positive, but yet healthily cynical about the fact that, you know, we are seeing reviews at the moment, and I think it would be fair to say the care review is an example of this, where whilst there is an ambition to improve the system, there's an equal ambition to save money. And I don't think that's the right approach. So we we really need to ensure that what we see as an outcome is a more pupil-centric, more parent-centric, uh, more ambitious expectation for young people with learning difficulties and disability in schools and a real roadmap for life for those young people. Mm, Yes absolutely and I think it's a concern across so many areas at the moment isn't it that the kind of need to reduce pressure and to perhaps deal with funding issues is, is sort of affecting what is actually delivered in practice and as you say for families that's a real worry because you don't have the time to wait years for changes to happen. Lots of young people 
go through the system before any changes that have been discussed are actually implemented. And that, I think, is a big concern. But hopefully we will see some positive action as a result of the paper. We know, however, that we've seen really significant changes in the government since the paper came out, and that is obviously going to have an impact on its progress. In terms of the long term, what are you hoping to see as a result of this on the ground? I think a real confidence that special educational needs is genuinely built in. You said at the beginning, quite rightly, that it can be an afterthought. And I think it has to be central to policymaking, to improvement planning for the education system at large you know we have to have an education system in the next 10 years that actually genuinely puts children who struggle to learn at the center of their thinking of our thinking and I think great schools great trusts do that that is their ambition and they look holistically at the development of children and instead of thinking about their lowest 5% or 10%, they think about those children as their priority children, the first 5% or the first 10%. And I think that's what we want to see from government. I think it's interesting that the theory of change for the Send Green paper is really fundamentally about inclusivity and strengthening inclusion across the system. And I think we, we need to be ambitious for that. We need to be clear about what that looks like. It's a, you know, we always say inclusion is not an event, it's a process and it's, a, it's an ongoing process. And I think for schools, for charities, for communities, for families, we always need to be making sure that we're communicating our ambitions for inclusion in a way that we're all aligned we're on the same page and certainly with the schools I work with through ASCOL it's one of our really key development areas to make sure that collaboratively as a school and a school community with our parents we are all ambitious for the same outcomes we understand what we mean when we talk about inclusivity we don't just use it as a sort of comfortable umbrella around which we hang our discussions about special educational needs. Mm, It's so interesting, isn't it? I was talking to a colleague recently about the way that people view sort of adjustments that are made for for young people with SEND. And so often the kinds of changes that benefit young people with SEND in the learning environment are broadly beneficial for other students as well. And having access to those kind of developments in the classroom, those adaptations, those kind of different approaches to learning can be really beneficial for, for a whole group. But it's so often sort of viewed as this is an awkward change we have to make to fit in this individual pupil or something along those lines. And really, actually, it's something that is a positive change for the the whole group and for the learning experience more broadly. It will be interesting to see what happens going forward. And and we hope that some of those promises will will come to fruition. Yeah, Ellie Chappell uses the phrase flipping the narrative. And I think that's a really, you know, it's flipping that that sort of afterthought to a forethought. Mm. And it's also about using, you know, sometimes these catchphrases, phraseology is important, isn't it? Because it sort of helps people reflect on what we're really ambitious for. And I think what you were describing, you know, I like that phrase, um, valuable for all, vital for some. Mm. I think that is... That is really, you know, we're seeing an awful lot of evidence in the system that supports the idea that that low threshold, high ceiling approach to teaching and learning, that notion of accessibility to the curriculum, those things are really, you know, they're, they're motivating teachers and leaders. And we want to see that as central to policymaking. Definitely. I'm going to take us a little bit further back in time now back to your time at school. Tell us a little bit about what you were like when you were at school. Were you a good student? Did you enjoy the experience? I loved school in the main. I I never felt like a successful student, I don't think, if I'm honest. I think I always just remember I'm quite dyslexic and I used to, you know, have a sea of red every time I looked at my, my exercise books. So I think it was my identity as a learner wasn't a strong one until I really got to college, I think. I stayed on for an extra year. I I was educated in Liverpool and I went 
after sixth form for a year at the uh, local college, mm. sixth form centre. And and that was really a great opportunity. I mean, I'd enjoyed my sixth form, but I'd really passionately wanted to do economics, but I'd gone to a girls' school and I'd been told that I would be able to do economics when I came back to the sixth form. But when I got there, they said, actually, no, we haven't been able to manage that. So the year a year later, I did um, a year-long course and did my economics A-level then and really enjoyed it, but enjoyed the different kind of learning environment as well, where I sort of started to form my own identity as a learner that was, I think, refreshed from, you know, from that notion of what you how you see yourself developmentally that I think had been forged in year seven when I'd moved into secondary school and hadn't really had a chance to reframe itself. So yes, when I did that extra year, I I really enjoyed the way in which I engaged with learning before I went on to university. And that that was really, really exciting for me. And I think it it taught me a lot about the importance of, of how young people see themselves as learners and forging their own identity as an effective learner in whatever shape form that might take. Mm, Having some sort of sense of agency over the experience really matters doesn't it and to Mm. feel like you're an active part of learning rather than it being done to you I think makes a big difference in how much you enjoy it how much you really engage with it where you feel you're going with your life. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, you get a chance to mature when you go on to a college experience as well. And I think we all need different things at different times, don't we? And it's about having that flexibility for young people to find, you know, opportunities to accelerate their learning at different stages. What stage is right for one child might not be right for another. And, um, you know, certainly for me, that was a time when I felt I sort of was able to flourish and felt ready to move on to, to next steps to, in my case, it was, it was university. Mm, That sounds lovely. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm glad that that stage was a, was a positive experience for you. It could have been to do with the clubbing in Liverpool as well at the time. (laughs) It was pretty good too. (laughs) I did end up having a really uh, meeting a new friend at college and I'm sure I'm able to say this on a podcast but she happened to start going out with the bass guitar player from Frankie Goes to Hollywood at the time and one day when I texted her oh no it wouldn't have been a text then I must have called her she happened to be in Barbados with them oh (laughs) wow normal experience of my Liverpool (laughs) But um, yeah, so college was good fun. Oh my goodness, I'm jealous. That makes my uh, my experiences watching bands in the local youth club look very sad. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any memories sort of back from your only experience of learning of, of what Send Provision was like at that time? Was it present sort of for you at all? With special educational needs? Mm. Yes, I think so. Although, to be honest with you, Alex, I wouldn't have thought I was aware of of that at the time particularly um you know of the challenges that some people had in terms of their learning and but my mum was a teacher she started teaching at 18 in a primary school in Liverpool Garston um and she's still on the governing body at 82 that's wonderful (laughs) but when we were kids we would go to everything at the primary school and when children were ill or when the family were having difficulty, mum would always take us along, you know, and, and we'd be involved in some fashion. Mm. And, and and I think we got a lot of insight from her reflections and her passion to support the community, not just the individual child, but to support the family. And I think my sense of that um, probably developed then, really. But in terms of becoming more confident to have a voice around special educational needs, I don't think that really happened until I had my own children. Mm, that's interesting. I have a similar kind of experience in that my mum was um, started off as a teaching assistant and went on to become a SENCO. And that really shaped Brilliant. my choices and my understanding. And I mean, that was what drove me to go into teaching in the first place, really, was having, you know, after school going down to the school that she worked in and sitting with her kind of in the afternoons when she was still working with young people and I really admired what she did and how much effort 
and time she put into the work that she did with the young people she worked with and that sort of thing really really affects you I think when you're when you're younger absolutely yeah I always remember there was a young girl who was terminally ill and who we still talk about at home now but she was in mum's class and some really happy great times you know visiting her and her family and you know not thinking about that as anything specific or different you know it was just you you took a job as a teacher to be part of the community and support the community Mm. and I think that's you know that's still really important to many many teachers and something that you know we don't talk about enough really in terms of enriching local communities and commitment, long-term commitment as a teacher to that community, which can be so, so valuable. Yes, definitely. Really important part of the job. My mum used to have great stories that she'd bring home, which made teaching sound very exciting and fun. <laughs> teaching is great for some good stories. My mum tells the story of taking a little girl to see Princess Margaret when she visited Liverpool. And they walked up what they called the Cinder Pass at the back of school. And they waited all day in the freezing cold with their flags ready to wave the flags at Princess Margaret as she came down. And as the car drove past, she sort of slithered down in the seat (laughs) and the children didn't get to really see her. And as they were walking back, it was actually a child with learning difficulties that mum was holding her hand. And um, she said, she said to my mum, Ah, oh, don't worry, miss. It doesn't matter. She says, my mum said she's a bloody bitch, that one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you can always rely on kids to show your best side, can't you? <laughs> More worried about my mum missing out than she was about the, the children. Bless her heart. That's lovely. <laughs> Well, this is probably a good point to kind of look to your own career in teaching. How did you make sort of that journey from from your education into the world of teaching? And what was that like for you? So I I didn't think I wanted to be in teaching. I worked at ICI, actually, on the sort of, which is at the university sort of um, milk crown scheme. Uh, Mm. So I did a year at ICI shipping in Runcorn. And that was fine, but I, it, I just thought, gosh, you know, there's nothing exciting about this. I don't feel like I'm moving anything forward. I'm not committed to it. And I then decided to try and save some money to go traveling and uh, looked for a job and got a job in a boarding school in Kingston-upon-Thames. And it was an international boarding school. And I was sort of looking after the girls when they were doing their study in the evening and you know, I'd just taken it on literally to, to make some money. Mm. But I started to really love it and love them and recognise that even though they were often from quite privileged families, they were quite lonely. They were quite, you know, without sort of confidence about who they were, what they wanted to do, how they wanted to interact with their peers. They needed so much support and actually I loved it I really really enjoyed it so I used it to make money but actually I think it really started to shape my thinking about next steps after a, after I went off traveling I came back and had applied for teacher training at Oxford mm, absolutely that's where I did my teacher training too <laughs> I didn't know that Alice that's lovely to hear I didn't know and Norham Gardens yes yeah <laughs> I uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was uh, a very sharp learning curve, but I um yeah, I I really enjoyed the experience and I think it it changed me quite profoundly. How did you find it? Did you enjoy it? It's it's quite a rigorous process. I like you. I absolutely loved it, but I found it yes, a really steep learning curve. I just thought it opened a box on what what learning was all about for me you know and open the lid rather you know I I just think I hadn't even conceived of the excitement I would feel about how children learn um, Mm. and about the world of schools and how beautifully complex they are rather than burdensome you know that complexity I do worry about the word complexity a lot because I think we we the system at the moment sort of sees complexity as a, as a problem, as a burden. But actually, when I was training to teach, 
that was that was the excitement you know I wasn't sitting in an office with looking at something that was the same every day and and wasn't challenging me I was I was in a complex environment of a classroom that was always unpredictable always changing and I loved that complexity and I loved being supported by incredible tutors and mentors in school who really, you know, helped you to understand that complexity and gave you insight. And I found that fascinating. Yeah, I felt very lucky to be there. I did history. What subject did you do, Alec? I did English. Yeah, Yeah, very similar experience. And I think benefited also from some brilliant tutors and mentors who who were really ambitious actually as well they were they were really innovative and I think it made me realize that teaching was was a lot more than maybe I had perceived it as when I was at school it was like seeing behind the curtain you know and some of the things that they were introducing really kind of fired me up to to try out all kinds of different things in the classroom myself. Was there anyone in particular who you looked up to when you were when you were training or in your first job? I was very, very lucky because I worked with Hazel Hagger, which you, who you probably remember mm. maybe um, uh, in the English department, but she was the tutor for the Didcot Girls School where I was teaching. I also had Anna Pendry for history, who was amazing. But the, in my first year at Didcot Girls School, because I, I trained there and then I stayed on mm. um, for the next few years, was I joined a research project with Hazel and Donald McIntyre, who you know, I didn't realise at the time I, I was an institution in terms of <laughs> education research. I just thought he was a really nice man who liked having curries on the Cowley Road after we'd done these workshop sessions all together <laughs> and we'd all go off for a curry. But actually, he was incredibly insightful in terms of mentoring coaching in terms of the relationships that uh, I was fascinated by which was that sort of how teachers learn Mm. in context in the classroom and in the school environment and and it was a real honor to be part of of that experience I think we were we were part of an Esbe Furban research project and uh, really looking into you know how early teachers, early career teachers develop. Um, and I was very lucky because in the history department in Didcot Girls School, I had um, the two Janes, as I called them, Jane Card and Jane Benables, both of whom are really experienced mentors and very innovative history teachers. Um, with deep, deep subject knowledge. So I, I was very lucky to sort of be surrounded by these opportunities to learn and develop. Wonderful. Yeah, that can make such a difference to what you're able to do when you when you really get into the career, can't it? Mm. I know you moved from, from teaching in Oxford to teaching in London. How would you kind of describe your overall approach in the classroom? Did it differ in, as part of that change? Well, it, it was a really interesting shift because it's a long time ago now and London was very different at that point. I got I went from the Oxford environment, which at the time was heavily sort of professionalised in, in the sense around reflective practice. So, you know, there was a lot of conversation in the staff room at Didcot where I was working around you know, how that lesson went, what you used, what strategy was working then, what what did you tweak? How how did that work for you? What can we what can we learn? How can we change the plan for next time? You know, what ambitions have you got for the you know for those individual children? There was a lot of real excitement about teaching and learning. And when I went to London, there was a much bigger focus on behaviour mm. and the challenges of behavior and and a lot less talk about how children learn and that actually was quite an interesting experience I mean I love the experience and I went into my first head of department post at head of history and that was fantastic you know the, the opportunity to develop others to employ people who I still work with now <laughs> Heather DeSilva who works in Haringey is a fantastic history teacher and colleague who I've continued to learn from for you know 20 odd years but actually, London was then going to go through that transition. You know, that's what I think the London Leadership Trust strategy did really, really effectively. Um, and that my time at the Institute of Education sort of went on to work within the London Leadership Strategy. And that's when I think 
London schools started to really dig deeper into the pedagogy and get excited about teaching and learning in a different way. And the narrative in those staff rooms changed, um, which was really exciting to be part of. Mm, absolutely. And you were you were at the um, Institute of Education at UCL for, for 14 years, I think. Mm. What drove you to make that transition in the first place? Going back to Oxford and that experience really with Donna McIntyre, I think, um, you know, that love of the mentoring process and the, and the opportunity to develop other teachers, to grow other teachers. Uh, I was really passionate about that. I just thought that relationship that exists between a mentor and a mentee and how you can support the development of a department through that kind of appreciative inquiry approach to, you know, build on people's strengths really develop their practice. I loved all that and that's what I was excited for in in terms of working at the Institute. So I started off just doing more and more stuff with the history department then at the Institute initially as a mentor and, and kind of getting to know people and then went on to work on the PGCE with, uh, for social science with Alison Curtin. And, and from there picked up the sort of responsibility for secondary teacher training for the graduate teacher program so I'd been on the PGCE working initially and then set up the the graduate teacher program for secondary and Sarabub set it up for primary and that was all very new and kind of very much seen as the poor relation at that time employment-based routes and and you know it it, it wasn't a program that was as rigorous as the PGCE and our ambition was to make it as rigorous as we could in terms of supporting schools to be really effective in their teacher development. Mm. And we know at the moment that the sector is struggling again with with recruitment and retention following a bit of an improvement during the pandemic. Uh, Obviously a a really long-standing issue Based on your kind of work around the routes into teaching, are there any kind of changes that you can think of from that work that you did that that would help with the ongoing issue now? Well, I think I think universities played a phenomenal part and still do in terms of teacher development and expertise in teacher education that I think hasn't been given sufficient recognition and, and and you know in terms of the rigor it can bring an offer and you and I both you know look back on our experience of the Ox- Oxford internship program and that internship program was a model of clinical practice mm. that was very much universities working really effectively in partnership with schools and I think over the last 10 to 15 years that narrative has been changed to represent, you know, almost this binary universities teach a BGCE and they teach teach it from a theoretical perspective and schools are more adept at the practice. And of course, that's, that's absolute distortion of what mm. good attractive teacher education looked like 15, 20, 30 years ago. So we've actually stagnated because of poor policy, I think, and not developing more effectively and deeply the partnerships between schools and universities, which are so rich. I think really government has got in the way of that, you know, and uh, really has undermined the professionalism of the profession in the mm. way, which I think is really, uh, you know, sadly dumbed down teacher education in a, in a way that that we really need to hold the system to account for, I think. I, I think there's many things that help, but I think, I mean, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about this a little bit, but, you know, at the moment we, are talk, we talk a lot about adaptive practice. Well, I think adaptive expertise is really important to teachers particularly teachers who want to be enabled to teach all children. Those teachers have to be confident in their capacity to adapt their planning, their curriculum, their responsiveness to young people. And that requires a lot of agency, a lot of confidence about your professionalism. And I think that is something we can rebuild more effectively because I think it's been undermined in recent years. So I, I welcome the, the focus on adaptive teaching, not in itself 
you know, it's, it's valuable in itself, but I think it offers us an even deeper opportunity, which is to focus on developing the adaptive expertise of teachers, not because they don't have it, but because they don't have enough opportunity to explore, practice, refine, reflect, celebrate that adaptive expertise. Mm, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, I mean, it, it, it takes us back to that retention issue again, doesn't it? Because, you know, the, the more you are able to, to take that sort of adaptive approach, the more opportunities are opened out to you, really. And I think in the current system, there there is a lot of potential to sort of move around between different roles. It's not necessarily the case that you go into a classroom teaching job and then you work your way up to being a assistant head or something. You know, there are other routes and you know, in other countries, we know, for example, that perhaps seeing the kind of wider range of routes through roles in education is, is more celebrated. And, and here, I think being able to encourage people or empower people to to move around the system in different ways rather than in that single sort of linear path would potentially encourage them to stay longer and have a richer experience. Absolutely, because you're feeding that professionalism. And I think we come into teaching with a passion, don't we? You know, it's a vocation. And and people mm. hate that phraseology, but I don't care. I, I do genuinely think people come in because they want to make a difference. And yes, they're passionate about their subject area and they want to deepen their knowledge um, of their subject, but they equally are passionate about young people and, and how they support their development. And I think we have to give more time to professional development really deep and celebratory professional learning so that teachers feel that they are enhancing that notion of their subject that notion of how children learn and how they support that learning as part of that growing professionalism and that will absolutely have an impact on retention I think the recent survey that said you know, teachers aren't looking for more money. They're looking for flexibility and mm. and professional recognition. And I think that is really key because if we don't modernise education and school settings to facilitate that, that sense of self and agency that each teacher should have, then we are going to lose teachers from the profession. Mm, mm, absolutely and it's about keeping that spark alive isn't it and allowing people to kind of really develop strengths and interests that will keep them engaged in a way that you know often isn't happening at the moment Mm. and now to look beyond your time at UCL you brought your expertise to Swiss Cottage Special School in London after that and established a development and research centre what were your aims when you when you started that work Well, I think that was an amazing opportunity. I was really enjoying the sort of teacher education work and and the work I was doing around networking head teachers as well at at the Institute of Education, but really felt that the opportunities being laid out in terms of teaching school development were really exciting and allowed just what we were talking about, Alex, that sort of creativity and innovation, but focused on the professional learning of teachers and so I was I was really excited about that and wanting to enhance those opportunities for teachers at all levels new teachers and really support and new teachers up to you know to experienced leaders but really support that career trajectory if you like that you know we used to say cradle to grave but um the the whole notion of the continuum and and you know the early career framework has addressed this in, in part, I suppose, but many people, many teachers, leaders, have always, always been passionate about that connecting of ITT, initial teacher education, into teacher development, so into the early career stage and then through. And I think I, that pipeline for me was, was an area of real excitement. I think also that notion of, you know, teaching hospital, We'd seen that in practice and, um, you know, the great opportunities that has um, given the health sector over the years and the idea that we might be able to develop something akin to that in in um, schools was really, you know, really exciting and certainly something I wanted to bring. And I think the other thing was 
And the reason that it was such a, a wonderful opportunity that was afforded me really through um, my connections at the time with Kay Bedford at, at Swiss Cottage was, um, you know, that it was a school that was already passionate about mentoring and coaching. And it also was a school that had a very clear uh, notion of special educational needs being core to understanding all children, mm. but actually being able to sort of to enhance learning and development for children with acute needs was absolutely the it was it was the privilege that every teacher should want to have because actually learning from those young people absolutely enhances our understanding of a mainstream practice and I really mm-hmm. believe that I genuinely believe that and I felt it was a really great opportunity to um establish a teaching school at a really well-respected special school and um, you know that for me was was something that I felt that teacher training we were really grappling at the time with how do we improve teacher education in the ITT phrase to actually ensure that that we're equipping new teachers to work with all children to support and teach effectively all children and I think I didn't feel that that we were doing that as effectively as we could we were working at it we were wanting to do better and actually working with special schools was one way in which we could enhance that that practice and provision. Mm, That's fascinating I would have loved to have done that as well. <laughs> it sounds like such interesting work. Yeah. And honestly, mm. you know, teachers in special schools are phenomenal. And and that's not because, you know, they are phenomenal because they are skillful. And I think yeah. one of the reasons they are so skillful is because they work collaboratively. And they have, you know, the way in which special schools are, are design their curriculum, design their, their week is much more contingent on collaborative working and and I think that that's something we really do have to enhance and the opportunities for that in in mainstream because it's only by you know there is no as teachers in special schools will tell you there's no magic fairy dust when it comes to supporting young people who have learning difficulties it's not like you say oh I've been teaching children with autism for 10 years I'm just going to pull out the bag my my 10 years of strategies to support these children and they'll all they'll all progress beautifully every special school teacher will tell you it's all about learning from the child it's about getting to know that child and their their strengths the things that challenge them it's about working with others to and with the parents particularly to understand better what works you know it's a problem solving it's a curiosity led it's it's forensic and and that's what special schools do really well and that's what we need the opportunity for teachers to do in mainstream because they try to do that but often the infrastructure and the expectation it limits their opportunities to do that effectively to have the time and you know the the, the recognition that working with colleagues is going to lead to those better outcomes for each and every child. Yes, I mean, that really reflects some of my experiences, I think, in the in the classroom as well. I think it's that being able to personalise learning in that way makes such a huge difference. Mm. But getting the kind of support for that approach can be really challenging because people see it as, you know, oh, this is something that's going to be too time consuming or is going to kind of distract from other things that that need to be done. And and actually it's an investment to take that approach and to make learning work, to really know the students and make learning work in, in a way that suits each of them as best as you can. I couldn't really see a way to teach without doing that. And I think for other people, it's sometimes seen as something that is kind of creating extra extra burden and it, I, I don't think it has to be that way but as you say there's some brilliant examples in special schools when we made the 12 short films about special educational needs and disabilities for the department for education and whole school send a few years ago we traveled around the country and saw just some really really brilliant things and met some wonderful people and it was incredibly inspiring I use those 12 videos still you know Alex oh brilliant <laughs> and what I do is 
look at some of the strategies that go with each of those and just to explain to listeners that you know they're sort of they are quite label specific aren't they they're sort of diagnostic specific so ADHD autism Mm. but they're brilliant because they're short videos that give you insight into you know if you've got children in your class that you're thinking I want to get to know those children better I want to understand their needs better than having a look at that short video but then my a colleague and I put together a list of strategies that might be effective but when we run training or workshops or work with schools actually sort of saying now look at these strategies they're not diagnosis specific you know getting to know the child is applicable to all these noticing skills applicable to all these supporting waiting for response times helpful for all children managing emotions and well-being all of those things yeah yeah so all those different things it really helps that I think those those resources are really helpful and getting them out there but getting them out there with the time for teachers to be able to reflect on them and think about how, when, and why they utilise them and why, when a strategy might be appropriate and how those strategies are not one size fits all. They are actually used in relation to um, where a child's at in their learning. Yeah. And those are the opportunities that I just think we need more a working week needs more time for teacher professional engagement within it. Mm. And that's a policy shift that we need to see happen. And certainly something that ASCAL supports in terms of next steps. Mm, very much agree. Well, thank you for that. I'm really glad that you, you feel they're useful. In terms of your experiences at Swiss or working with Swiss Cottage Special School, I mean, was that a kind of turning point for you, for your sort of passion for SEND or was it coming from other areas? I know you mentioned your, your children earlier. Yes, no, I, I, I mean, definitely was really formative for me being at Swiss Cottage and in the phenomenal staff and, and families there. So I learned a lot and we worked very closely with lots of other special settings, which, you know, again, very formative. But yes, also for me, one of the reasons for my passion with special education needs is that my eldest child has learning difficulties and I've, I've had to learn a lot. You do become an expert as a parent, mm. but you become an expert in your own child, not necessarily in everyone else's. And I think, you know, just just the very difficult pathway that I we've experienced as a family in terms of that sense of belonging for a young person who's needs initially aren't understood or diagnosed and then you know the sort of expectation that somehow once they are diagnosed that things might get easier and that sense of belonging might be stronger we've gone through all that as a family and and we've learned a lot and I suppose I'm passionate that whatever I've learned I can support others to to better engage with their schools and you know even as a teacher and so many teachers tell me this that they find the experience of having their own children with learning difficulties really difficult because they know they understand both sides of how you know how school might struggle to communicate what they're doing you know often schools are doing so much to support young people but they're not always able to articulate just what that looks like as often or as regularly as as families need in a way so Mm. I think that collaborative working you know that's definitely something that I feel very passionately about it takes us back to the sort of sense of community that we were talking about at the start I think I used to um, volunteer with a a London charity well they've got branches all over but Keen London Mm. they also work in Oxford Mm. and they provide activities for for young people with various different send on the weekends and it's a bit of a break for parents and a brilliant time for the kids but one of the brilliant things about the work that they do is is creating that sense of community and bringing people together for shared experiences and a bit of troubleshooting along the way you know sharing solutions things that have worked also helping those young people to you know be in a big group together with with other young people who've had similar experiences and 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 share those and and really kind of show off their their strengths and talents and things as well and that coming together I think both for the young people and the parents is really really valuable and 
a fantastic experience for for the volunteers as well yeah I think that community experiences are just key aren't they and I don't I think we've lost a lot of them in recent years so it's it's really important actually we talked about Tim Brickhouse when we spoke earlier and and Tim and I were both doing the awards for TES um, last year and we just had this really interesting conversation around you know the whole notion of how schools are desperately trying to connect young people with community activities like you know like scouts like Mm. you know swimming clubs those broader opportunities that actually root them in their community and that often is a privilege that actually is removed from young people with learning difficulties not because there aren't things happening but often they have to travel a long way to go to school yeah the opportunity might be present but it doesn't mean it's accessible and I think that's something we've got to just work harder at and it was lovely to hear Tim talking about how a couple of the entries had really highlighted their responsibility as a school for looking with the families at what community provision was available and supporting that and sort of bedding it into the curriculum, linking it into the school curriculum in order that it's sustained over a long period of time and was having an impact on that preparation for adulthood. So I think there's so much there that we really need to, you know, think about for all young people, not just those young people with learning difficulties because I think more and more we're hearing of how dependent young people are about living their lives online you know that statistic this week which is really worrying about one in 10 children feeling safer online than in school you know definitely a response from the pandemic that's I think it was the key the research the key had done but also a response to how much time young people have in terms of their opportunities to engage in other activity in the community. Yes, it's such an important one for us at CFEY as well, because we are lucky enough to span both the education and youth sectors. We've got a really sort of privileged position of being able to see that landscape across the two and where possible, try and make those connections. Because as you say, there's a real appetite for more kind of collaboration and, and to help young people to kind of access all different kinds of experiences and where possible we're always trying to act as that glue that brings the two sides together so that young people can can try some of those things and get involved with some of those things that as you say uh, are maybe kind of not as easy to to access as, as they could be and lovely to hear about Tim as well of course so Tim was our first ever life pedagogic episode guest so um, um, great to hear about your work with him I know that you worked with him at UCL yeah I always remember him saying to me so Margaret you know what in terms of the London leadership strategy what what do you think you could bring and I was thinking oh my gosh yeah what could I bring he said but you know schools really really well in London you know you've got a real sort of encyclopedic knowledge of schools and who who leads them and um relationships with them and and so so what do you think you might be able to contribute and I said well I think I sort of you know I'm pretty good at connecting people together and so he he then sort of came back with this proposal about networking school leaders Mm. I, I very much felt I was fitting into my niche as a Liverpudlian with a kind of Scylla Black role for education of <laughs> blind dating these school leaders, which was a fantastic Amazing. London leadership strategy. And, they, and they, many of those leaders have gone on to be, you know, ongoing colleagues and then friends for many, many years which is really lovely. So it was a great privilege to be able to do that and look at the fantastic work of some of the, the school leaders during London Challenge and the, the you know the incredible innovations that they brought. Mm. <laughs> that was wonderful. Mm. Fantastic. I'm aware that we've taken up lots of your time, Margaret. You've been very generous this afternoon. So thank you for that. I'd like to ask you the two final questions that we always ask our guests on The Life Pedagogic. The first one is thinking back on your education career. Is there anything that you feel you've really changed your mind on? And if so, what was it that made you change it? Um, I think definitely 
thinking about that journey from teacher training through to to now, you know, that kind of one size fits all. Um, I didn't really understand the need for that responsive teaching initially. It took a long time to develop that sort of recognition and understanding, I think. So definitely my own capacity to understand the needs of individual children and to move away from that kind of acceptance of a one-size-fits-all mantra. I think also that notion of ability. I still think that it's very difficult to, to hold strong in every day, day-to-day, working with young people with a transformative sort of expectation. And I think I've I've learned to do that, you know, always expecting something new from them. If they failed at it yesterday, they'll achieve tomorrow. And, you know, that kind of developing that characteristic as a teacher, I think, has been a really exciting thing. But certainly something I'm I'm much clearer about now than I was when I started. Mm, That's really valuable. And the second question is, what two things would you most like to change about the English education system, if you could? pretty huge question (laughs) Um, I think certainly you know something we've talked about today a lot putting those who struggle to learn at the center of our thinking both as teachers and as policy makers so making them the first five percent not the last five percent to be considered so the priority in terms of our planning Mm. and I think also Secondly, giving teachers greater agency to respond to their context, their locality, and to develop their professionalism. So that teacher agency. So I think those two things, you know, building SEND in, not bolting it on, which is a phrase I often use, but also teacher agency, really growing and developing that as something that really helps teachers value the the wonderful experiences that they have every day you know to do that to fulfill that potential that they have they have to have the autonomy and the agency to be creative to be innovative to develop their own practice in flexible ways and as we talked about earlier to step in and out of the profession if they need to in order to really enhance their life alongside their commitment and passion for work. Mm, absolutely. Well, if we can see those two things happen, I uh, I might go back to the classroom myself. <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> that would be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, Margaret Mulholland, it's been an absolute pleasure and a real privilege to have you on the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed discussing your life pedagogic. I really have. Thank you so much, Alex. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Life Pedagogic. We love making this podcast. And if you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, then there are a few things you can do to help us. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who you think will find it interesting. And three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to get in touch with us using the links in the show notes. See you back here for the next episode.